0: Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we bring Asia to you through conversations with people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region.
1: The key mandate of Indian foreign policy is to both shape India's growth and be shaped by India's growth. To use India's incremental weight for global good, as well as to to secure India's long-term accretion of both economic and uh, political and technological weight.
0: I'm Rex and president of the Asia group. And today I'm really pleased to be joined by Mr. Ashok Malik. Ashok recently left a very senior position in the Indian government where he served for three years as a policy advisor and additional secretary in India's ministry of external affairs. In this capacity, he worked closely with the minister, Dr. Shankar, and others to help shape, explain and implement India's foreign policy. He also previously served as speechwriter and spokesman for the 14th president of India, President Ram Nath Kovind, and he has long been one of India's best read columnists and commentators including having been awarded the 2016 Padma Shiri, one of India's highest civilian honors. He draws on over 30 years of experience in government media and thought leadership. And I am pleased also to consider Ashok a colleague as he has joined the Asia group as our newest partner and chair of our India practice. Ashok, thank you so much for joining us And to have you on board at the Asia Group.
1: Thank you so much, Rexon, for that very generous introduction. It's an absolute pleasure to be at the Asia Group and to be with you on this podcast. I'm looking forward to this conversation.
0: Ashok, let's start maybe big picture. And if I could ask you about sort of India's place in the world, and if you could give us just sort of your frame for. India's foreign policy objectives, bilaterally, in the region, around the globe, especially as India takes a more vocal and active approach to international affairs?
1: Well, India began to open up its economy in 1991, and it really began to grow in a manner that got the world to notice in the early years of the century, about 2003. For a decade, it grew at about 8.5%, 8.3% a year. And that really changed perceptions about India globally, as well as aspirations within India. This year, too, India is in a very turbulent global economy. India is probably going to be the world's fastest-growing major economy. It's already the world's fifth-largest, sorry, by GDP. It will be the third-largest behind the U.S. and China by the end of the decade. Now, with great greater power, greater economic power comes greater responsibility. Also comes greater self-confidence. The crux of Indian foreign policy, the key mandate of Indian foreign policy is to both shape India's growth and be shaped by India's growth. To use India's incremental weight for global good, as well as to to secure India's long-term accretion of both economic and uh, political and technological weight. So uh quite unlike the early years of India's independence in the 50s and 60s, when uh, foreign policy goals were very divorced from economic thinking and our economic needs at all, uh, when the, the debates of that time were more political perhaps, right now the convergence between technology, national security, both traditional and non-traditional because, you know, military security, cyber security, health security, all of these matters, well, all of these matter, trade, technology, business, the the integration of all of these as key ingredients of foreign policy making and implementation uh, is very marked. And this is something which uh, is new for India. It's something which has rapidly taken shape in the past four or five years, especially under the government of Prime Minister Modi. And uh, it's it is a very exciting time to be both a practitioner and an influencer or a watcher of India's foreign policy and broader engagement with the world.
0: You know, your description there, Ashok, has, you know, I hear parallels to the kinds of new debates, new focus, this question of economic security and industrial policy that are here in Washington as well. There, there seem very much to be parallels. And I would hazard the opinion that this has been one of the drivers that has helped Strengthen alignment in some ways between the United States and India. But maybe ask you a follow up question in this space on trade. And, you know, this has been an area where, you know, negotiating trade agreements are hard uh, for any country, Uh, certainly has been some challenges between the United States and India in the trade space. But India's had some recent successes with agreements with Australia, the Emirates, negotiating agreements with Canada and the UK. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the trade dimensions and, and how they factored into the policymaking while you were in government.
1: India signed a slew of free trade agreements in the early 2000s, which was really the the high point of global trade, when there was a lot of idealism and wide-eyed optimism about FTAs, not Mm -hmm. just in India or Asia, but many parts of the world. Now, quite frankly, about 10 years down the line, say 2014, 2015, when many of those deals came up for renewal or renegotiation, it was found that India hadn't, quite benefited from those trade agreements and the way it had perhaps aspired or hoped. It was importing much more in terms of finished goods, especially goods that could be traced back to China in some form or the other. And it wasn't exporting enough in terms of manufactured goods. Domestic capacities, rather than being built, had been hollowed out. This experience is not unique to India. Quite frankly, there is weariness today to enter into any trade agreement which uh, gives undue access to especially Chinese manufacturer. This was one of the reasons why India, after many years of negotiation and much internal debate and hand-wringing, walked away from the RCEP uh, agreement in, what was it, 2019, the free trade agreement between ASEAN and China and ASEAN's FTA partners. Because as someone in the government at that point, a colleague told me, uh, whichever way one looks at it, the ASEAN economies are now so integrated with China in terms of uh, supply chains, in terms of where one supply chain ends and the other begins, this will end up being an FTA with China.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that led to a new realism on trade. I would argue that FTAs today are not seen as free trade agreements, but feasible trade agreements. And every country, every every relationship, every trade deal has its own feasibility stress test. India has now negotiated, begun negotiating or, or has signed trade deals with what it calls complementary economies, economies where it has something to, to gain but also something to give and where there is no fear of manufacturing being hollowed out by cheap imports. So it signed a tri- free trade agreement with uh, Australia, with the UAE. Uh, it's looking at Israel, it's looking at Canada It's looking at the UK, perhaps this year, and uh, the EU as well. It's not looking at a trade agreement yet with the US, but I think it's only a matter of time. Quite frankly, Mm -hmm. the US itself is going through many of these debates and domestic politics in the US is also pushing back against the earlier trade model, which was a very wide-eyed model. So we're going through very similar concerns.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Uh, and you, you're quite right. You know, uh, especially after the, the supply chain disruptions following the pandemic and then the Ukraine war, and especially after the, the price gouging we saw for uh, even everyday items such as masks or oxygen concentrators two, or three years ago. And because of the trade model being what it is, what it has been for the past 20 years and the pushback, expressions like industrial policy or building building resilience at home or, or diversifying sourcing including reshoring or or friendshoring if you will these have come back to to political discourse and to to political conversations in a way they hadn't done for for decades actually so you know i, I can't remember the last time i heard Someone in, in, in the US, a senior government administration person in the US used the term industrial policy, but it's been used so often in the past few years. So we're going through similar challenges in India, of course, at a very different level, because we are a fraction of, only a $3 trillion economy, a fraction of the size of the US. But I think a more realistic approach to trade, but also a recognition that you need to trade with friends and strategic partners uh, such as Australia, the UAE, EU, and of course the US, is taking shape. And uh, certainly as India grows as an economy and as, develops as a society, a partnership with the US across sectors from innovation, technology, climate change-related technology, renewable energy technology, and of course uh, a steady stream of uh, uh imports and exports especially in in areas such as uh, healthcare and pharmaceuticals that is uh, quite frankly non-negotiable because yeah. uh, india sees the us as its uh, irreplaceable partner
0: to what degree ashok does this thinking and these drivers that you've so eloquently laid out factor into india's approach to the quad
1: you know the Quad has had two iterations. It was it it rose in the early two thousands, and then quietly vanished for some time because uh, uh, I guess nobody was quite ready for it. Uh, we all blamed each other, but <laughs> in a no one was quite ready for it. Uh, I think if the Quad has come back to much degree, uh, India is responsible. India pushed in twenty nineteen for. Quad to reconvene at the foreign minister's level. The baton was then picked up by the Australians. It was taken still further by two successive US administrations, very different administrations, the Trump administration and the Biden administration. They probably agree on nothing, but on the (laughs) Quad and the Indo-Pacific, they agreed. And it's been almost seamless. India's, if if you look at India's geography, uh, geographical location, it's a just below the, or just south of the great Eurasian landmass. Mm -hmm. And it straddles the uh, Indo-Pacific, Afrikaan to its west, Southeast Asia and East Asia to to its east. So it's a triangle really with the Indian Ocean on one side, the Pacific on the other, and Eurasia above it in a sense. India cannot manage this, entire neighborhood, this extended neighborhood, with any one partner or any one platform. In fact, no one platform can manage this this massive neighborhood, this massive region. You will always have multiple partnerships, multiple platforms, multiple plurilaterals, if you will. But of all of these, I think Quad stands out as perhaps the most important, the most flexible, the most forward-looking, not just focused on something narrow like traditional security, but looking at standards, looking at uh, norms, looking at a rules-based order, and looking at a common pool of shared values between four democracies. This is perhaps the only partnership of this nature that India is a part of, where every single member is a democracy. And uh, Minister Shankar, my former boss, said a few days ago that we are part of a number of partnerships, but Quad is simply perhaps our most valued to that. And if you, if you look at the, the three other members of Quad, India and the US, the US is our largest trade partner, one of our closest political friends. It's, as I said, it's an irreplaceable friend. Japan has been a traditional friend and a traditional provider of, of technology and assistance plays a big role in our economy, Japanese companies do. And with Australia, after many decades of you know missing each other like ships passing each other on a dark night in an ocean, over the past uh, eight years, especially under Prime Minister Modi, across uh, successive administrations and governments in Australia, the relationship has blossomed from uh, virtually no political engagement for, for years, Uh, at the highest level, at the Prime Ministerial level, in terms of visits. Prime Minister Modi was the first Indian Prime Minister to visit uh, Australia. He went there in 2014 or 2015. He was the first to go in some 30 years. And if you look at where we started off from in 2014 or 2015, to conclude an FTA this year uh, would tell you how far the relationship has gone. In fact, uh, it is one of our closest friends in the world today, Australia is. So, Quad is really the sum of these bilateral relationships and then something incremental, something beyond it. Yeah.
0: yeah. So
1: quad is very, very important.
0: I, I couldn't agree more, and and I think it's your comments are reflective of this convergence because I think there's again, I think a lot of similarity in how US policymakers in and out of government see the value of the sort of foundational grouping of the quad. Ashok, you talked about the feasible trade agreements looking for complementarity in economic relationships. Prime Minister Modi has also had a, you know, expressed priority around self-reliance. And, you know, again, you know, wouldn't be the only country to lift up trying to invest back at home. You hear it here in Washington, you hear it in Beijing, and you hear it in, in New Delhi. Give us, unpack what self-reliance, the policy, the strategy of self-reliance means for the prime minister.
1: You know, this was something he's spoken about even before the pandemic. It was a trend that was apparent before the pandemic, and it has got sharpened and accentuated after the pandemic, and perhaps more so after the Ukraine war, but I would say the mm-hmm. pandemic was a was a turning point. Three things have really shaped this thinking on self-reliance. And uh, I one, it's a belief that uh, it, while India's economy is growing, uh, Indian manufacturing is not growing, and Indian integration with global value chains is insufficient. So there is a deep desire to to raise the quantum of Indian manufacturing in the GDP to 25% from the current I think 15 odd percent which will take some doing it doesn't mean India can make everything, that is not true at all, it's just not possible for any country, but it is a desire to to push manufacturing especially in India and raise standards so that integration with global supply chains can be that much easier it's also a recognition that uh, in two areas, one, energy, and second, electronics, especially electronics and mobile phone hardware. The dependency on imports, especially imports from China, but not just China, to be fair, is and has been assuming the, the levels of a crisis. Because uh, even with just about 50% internet penetration in a country, we have some 700 million users, of the internet and of a population of one point four billion, even with fifty percent penetration, in twenty fourteen we were importing something like ninety five percent of mobile phones in our country into our country with very little value addition here. Uh, that had to change, and uh, his Mr. Modi and his government have really pushed that. So uh, the success of moving some of the Apple uh, iPhone uh, production lines from China to India. Providing incentives to Apple and its its manufacturers, contract manufacturers, to come here, facilitating transition from China to India, uh, trying to understand what makes uh, what makes it easier for GVCs to move from one country to another, from one geography to another. All of that, that education in a sense, and that process of of implementing what governments or policymakers learn. Can uh, understand GVCs and much more deeply. That is critical and central to this, what we call Atmanirbhar Bharat or Self-Reliant India. It certainly doesn't mean we can. There's a some crazy belief that we can make everything at home. Nobody believes that, and nobody wants that. But it is a desire to to enhance manufacturing at home, and after the pandemic, in particular, not to be left in a situation where. You were faced with a virus that was fickle and unknown, and you couldn't even make masks at home, which is a situation many countries faced. Or When we had our, our second wave, uh, our second surge of the COVID uh, pandemic, we ran out of uh, oxygen concentrators. We had actually doubled oxygen production in the interim, in between the first and second waves, but oxygen demand trebled. And uh, people died because they couldn't get access to oxygen. And oxygen concentrators, which are not sort of supersonic aircraft you right. can make them anywhere in the world, you should be able
0: right.
1: to, were just not available. And uh, those countries that were manufacturing them were were raising prices on a, frankly, a daily basis. I don't think any country wants to be in that situation. So there is a steely resolve to to look at diversified capacities and, you know, Autonomy in supply chains, including autonomy by putting some of the supply chains at home.
0: Mm-hmm. But I also hear you saying, Ashok, that you know dimensions of self-reliance are are not just focused exclusively on building Indian industry, Indian companies. That it is there are clear dimensions of this that seek to attract industry leading industry players whether it's in the technology space and in different forms of manufacturing you know emerging technologies to foster partnership with whether it's american companies or japanese or europeans that that you are seeking to attract the kind of diversification as companies look for alternatives to china you know there's a lot of talk about vietnam as a destination for manufacturing i continue to believe that the role of in place of india is inescapable for us but but i hear you saying that that is that is also a dimension of what self-reliant means it's not just an inward looking policy
1: no not at all uh, i'll give you three examples to establish why it's not one uh, the herculean effort the government has made across ministries, including in the foreign ministry where I served, through the pandemic, through the the border face-off with China, to enable Apple to move its production lines from China to to India. Not all its production lines, of course, but some of them. And the way it's uh, been very sensitive to Apple and to some degree Samsung as well, because they're both in the mobile phone business, but particularly Apple, uh, the way it's been sensitive to to Apple's needs, to how it can enable Apple to do even more in India. Second, if you look at Vodafone, uh, not an Indian company, uh, it was running a, it is running a mobile biz phone business in India. It's a telecom service provider in India, which uh, was more or less going to shut down. And that would have left only two players in the market, both Indian companies, Bharti and or Airtel and Reliance. So you would imagine a country looking inverse would have been perfectly happy to see a foreign company go bust and have two domestic champions. But what did the government do? The government uh, actually bought equity uh, in Vodafone and said, uh, keep your business running because we want competition. So it's, it's a rare case of a, a national government shoring up a foreign company to continue doing business to ensure greater competition even when it comes to technology, uh, what this government is clear is that it's not going to follow a China model where China shuts out global brands. But neither does it want to follow a European model where the Europeans haven't really been able to create their own brands and Mm. have become entirely dependent on Californian brands in a sense, or Silicon Valley (laughs) brands. So it does want fair competition where you have big tech, which is American tech, of course it's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. But you also have competition and room for domestic players, which I think is only fair. And quite frankly, uh, if there is adequate space for domestic companies to grow and thrive, it gives politicians the, the political capital, as it were, to persevere and continue with greater global engagement. Again, it's it's not a challenge which is uh, unknown to politicians in in the yeah. U.S. today or many other
0: countries. No, that's right. That's right. Many, many, a lot of similarities in this conversation between India and the United States. I, I'd like to shift a little bit to more squarely the geopolitics of the big power relationships that India has. You know the India Russia relationship, and you know a lot's been. Spoken and, and written about the contours of the relationship, the longstanding political relationship, the defense and military dimensions. Uh, you alluded to some of the energy reliance that India has on on Russia. So that's one. The second, of course, is the you know very difficult relationship India has with China. I'd characterize it, I think, in uh, a minimum as a challenge. You know, you have a, a long-standing bordered dispute with China that uh, we've all seen flare up. And so you have, you, you know, India, China, and then there's the United States, where we've seen this amazing convergence over, you know, two decades between our two countries. And, and my question, and I, look, I know this is a big question and also, you know, a hard one, but if you were to, to look out, Ashok, Five years from now, what what do you think those three relationships look like from New Delhi?
1: Okay, let's start with China because that's the the easiest. Uh, China is a is a neighbor. It's, it's still a big trading partner. But it was our largest trading partner till a few years ago. Now the U.S. is. China broke uh, f- four border management agreements going back to the nineteen nineties, uh, which allowed for a, a sort of a protocol to manage. disputed border. Without prejudice to each other's claims, we agreed to a a system of patrolling and keeping troops in certain positions. China broke that in the summer of 2020 by sending uh, a very large number of soldiers, close to 100,000, into positions they had no business being in. Uh, Soldiers were supposed to be several kilometers away or a few meters away. And this could have led to an accident In one case, it did.
0: Uh,
1: It it led to to the first acts of killing on the border in 75, I think. That has soured things uh, in India. It soured things politically. It soured things at the public level. There is a lot of public anger. Uh, I'm sure the Chinese have their own story. But as we see it, it's part of Chinese muscle flexing on multiple frontiers, which has happened in the past two or three years. We don't know why the Chinese are there. They are in positions they have no business being in because as per agreements they had agreed to uh, and signed on to in the 1990s. The entire trade relationship and business relationship and even the fledgling tourism relationship with China had grown in the past 30 years on the assumption that those border management protocols would be adhered to. Now that those border agreements have more or less been torn up by the Chinese, Frankly, you can't put the toothpaste back into tube. Mm-hmm. so I, India has entered a very difficult phase in its China relationship when trust is uh, trust was never very high, but it's really gone south. and I don't think it's going to come back very quickly. This has also obviously influenced how India looks at the world generally and looks at its other relationships. The relationship with Russia. Uh, is an old relationship. For a variety of reasons, they became very large defense su- and military suppliers to India during the Cold War. There are many reasons for that. Let's not delve into that now. India has been attempting to diversify, especially in terms of platforms over the past 20 odd years. Perhaps you could have diversified faster, with greater urgency. I certainly think the timelines to diversify will now be crunched. When you mm-hmm. make. But as you know, you know the defense and business better than I do. Pivoting platforms is not easy. Right, It it takes years. And especially with uh, tens of thousands of Chinese troops at our border, India doesn't want to jeopardize supply of spares and equipment uh, from from anybody, especially Russians. So that has, uh, to some degree, moderated what India has said publicly. However, we've been very clear, we don't like this war. We don't support this war. We don't support the invasion of of Ukraine. And we'd rather this war had not happened. It's come at a very bad time uh, for the global economy. Not that any war can come at a good time, but this one in particular has come just as the world was beginning to recover from COVID. I think we anticipated faster than many of our European friends especially, uh, the supply chain disruptions that could come with this war. Uh, Because for key commodities, food, in in our case, for fertilizers, which is a key input to to growing food, Uh, edible oils, uh, we buy, we use a lot of sunflower oil in India. Some 45% of our sunflower oil was imported from Ukraine. It's down to zero now, virtually zero. And of course, in terms of energy, because as uh, Russia... Russian energy supplies to Europe got disrupted. Europe has gone around the world looking for for energy. And where has it gone? It's gone to the Middle East, which, was, which has now become a key source for India. It's not that there's some new energy that's being invented or some new oil or gas that's being invented. It's the same pool, which suddenly has more takers now or more buyers now. So, uh, yes, we have seen r- crude oil from Russia coming into India. But this is not some conscious government-to-government decision. Uh, frankly, these are deals happening at the level of individual companies, because in many cases, the, the crude oil is available on the high seas. It's a predicament all countries are coping with. Uh, you know, if it's snowing in December, in, whether it's in you know, Srinagar in India or, or, or in Seattle in the US or in, or in Switzerland.
0: Munich in
1: Germany. My, yeah. Uh, or in German, Munich in Germany. If and if my children are freezing, I'm not going to sit back and say this is all because of supply chain disruptions, because Putin invaded Ukraine. I'm going to blame my Prime Minister, my president, my government and say I need energy. So I think we all have a responsibility to our citizens and to our countries. And it's a dilemma, but all countries are trying to cope with it in their own way, and there's no perfect answer. But at a broader level, if you look at uh, India's trade relationship with Russia, minus the, the energy purchases of the past two or three months, it's stuck at the 10 to $12 billion a year level. It hasn't moved. The needle hasn't moved. With the US, it's about $150 billion a year and growing. That should tell you something about the weight of the two relationships. So, yes, we are buying energy and we're buying defense equipment from Russia, but we're buying pretty much nothing else. And, you know, Indian companies, in their own quiet way, have all adhered to the sanctions because they don't want to risk business links with the U.S. or with Europe for some minimal business dealings with Russia. So, you know, Indian business is, is, is voting with its feet, in a sense. And those two numbers, the, the trade figures—thirteen billion or twelve billion dollars a year with uh, Russia and one hundred fifty billion with the U.S. should tell you about the trajectory of the two relationships. So, if five years down the line, I, I guess those numbers will be even sharper. And if international relationships are for any country are a, a, a basket with many different weights, I would say the Russia weight both in absolute terms and in relative terms, is declining. And the U.S. weight is growing. However, it's unlikely that the Russia weight will ever hit absolute zero.
0: Yeah. Now, thank. that's a fantastic outlook on the three relationships. Ashok, what do you think are the biggest challenges to sustain the trajectory that you just painted for the U.S.? India relationship as we look out into the future? Where are the risks?
1: Well, there's a look, first, there's a broader risk, uh, a broader concern. If you look at China's economic growth, it took place in a fairly benign post Cold War geopolitical environment. And, uh, you know, as the US got involved in two wars in the early 2000s, Mm -hmm. it actually gave China even more space. India's growth is going to really sharpen in the 2020s. This is a make-or-break decade for India, in a sense. And this is a decade that is promising to be very, very turbulent and packed with geopolitical risk. So that is certainly one concern. Uh, that's a concern for India, a concern for a friend of India, such as the U.S. The second is uh, India's transition to an industrial economy will take place simultaneously with its energy transition from to more and more renewable energy. This is, frankly, unprecedented. It's also going to be expensive because it will require a steady stream of technology finance, of of renewable energy finance, climate finance, and and climate change compatible technology, both of which have question marks in front of them right now. So that remains a big concern. Uh, India certainly doesn't want to industrialize by burning up the sort of fossil fuels which previous industrial powers have done. And the third is, uh, while the strategic relationship is strong, while the defense relationship is growing, while political and public trust in each other is very strong, I think there has to be a broader economic partnership, which both systems have to talk about. There are business linkages at the individual corporation level, but as two partners so consequential to each other and to and to the planet in the in the first half of the 21st century, if not longer. I think India and the US need to talk not just trade, but talk about an economic partnership. They need to talk bilaterally about supply chains, about e-commerce, about data, and of course also about trade. Uh, fortunately, the past three or four years have not given Either country or either system, the space, whether internationally or domestically, to have that the strategic conversation on the economy, on their economies, but that is certainly something I look forward to in the next few years.
0: We're, we're going to wrap up here, Ashok, but I want to ask you a very practical question from your perspective of when you were in government and now when you're out, but still, you know, in the New Delhi ecosystem. How impactful is it that we have not had an ambassador in New Delhi for some time now?
1: You know, uh, actually, within government, since there's so many withers between between officials in both countries, so many meetings, and because there's an understanding that uh, the U.S. system of confirmations is dependent on, on a facilitative political environment, which is perhaps absent in Washington today. Within government, there is some sympathy and understanding. But at the broader public level, where people don't get all of those nuances and don't understand why uh, ambassadors don't just show up the moment they're appointed. So (laughs) uh, it's got people wondering. So um, I think it is a public relations problem. It's also a substantial problem because a good ambassador could be a great force multiplier but I would say that right now I'm more concerned about the public relations problem than the pure substantial problem it has got people in the city wondering in three years or two years and uh, where is the US ambassador if, if this relationship is so important to both countries where is the US ambassador so well I,
0: fingers I crossed
1: it's, 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 yeah because trust
0: (laughs) 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 oh Ashok, we could go on and on and i think we will have a bookmark here for a future episode to pick up the conversation and check back with you for perspectives from new delhi but i want to thank you for joining us today for this opening conversation and sharing your perspectives on on really sort of the waterfront from the perspective of, of India. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Rexel. That was a wonderful conversation. I hope you found it useful as well. And I hope I made sense.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. And I want to thank our listeners. Please be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. Thank you, Rickson. Thanks, Ashok.